All right, turn with me over to the book of Mark, and today we're going to concentrate on family, the core value of family. We're going to look at Mark chapter 3, verse 31 through 35. Mark 3, 31 through 35. The title of the message today is The Bond of Obedience. Family, the Bond of Obedience. It says, then his mother, speaking of Jesus, uh, it says, then his mother and his brothers arrived and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Verse 33, answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. Verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother my brother, my sister, and mother. Lord, help as we study your word. There are two things that I'd like to concentrate on from this passage. One, the undeniable ties you've got with your blood family and how those need to be strengthened by you. And then the theologically undeniable ties that you have through the body of Christ, the blood family and the body of Christ. Jesus, we believe in this passage, is at home. Mark chapter 2, it starts with saying, while they were at the house. Now, when it says at the house, obviously Mark is writing to a group of people who would interpret exactly what he means from which house, meaning at the house. Everybody else would know what the house meant in Capernaum. Even though Jesus uh, was, was hailed as coming from Nazareth because his parents were there, as a grown-up, he lived in Capernaum. He may have done some things as a child there in Nazareth with his parents, but something happened in his growing up years. Joseph was no longer around. We think he passed. We're not quite sure, but in all likelihood that is the case. And now Jesus has the responsibility to care for his mother in her aged years. And I think all of us would more than assume that there could not have been a more faithful, good, and loyal son than Christ to Mary. (laughs) How about the best ever? So he was caring for his mama, and we think that, that this care required that he provide a house for her. Now, it may have been the house in which he did many of his, or much of his teenage years. We're not quite sure when they moved to Capernaum, but we know that Capernaum was their home. And we think that this was Mary's house in which they were, which would have also been Jesus' house. Now, I went to seminary. Didn't graduate, want to, going to someday. As soon as I can stop paying for tuition, I'm going I'm to do that. But... <clears throat> When I went to seminary, they said, uh, the common, common thought was that Jesus didn't have a home because he said in, in, in Luke chapter 9, in response to somebody who said, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, I don't think Jesus was speaking of his homelessness. He was about ready to go to Jerusalem. It was six months out. And the crowds were swelling. They thought this is the moment in which he's going to be, be coronated as the Messiah. And from their perspective, that meant he was going to unseat Pilate, who was the puppet ruler of Rome, as well as Herod, who was the usurper of the throne for Israel. 
And then Jesus was going to take over, and this kingdom upon which he would sit would expand until it, it enveloped all of the Roman Empire and indeed the entire world. And everybody who was with him thought, I want a cabinet position. I want a place in your government, someplace. And so the crowds were swelling, thinking he's going to go to Jerusalem and get this thing done. And everybody was saying, take me with you. Take me with you. And Jesus says, well, hear me. It's not going to happen like you think. Foxes have place that they, places they call their home and where they rule well. Birds have places that they call home, and that is their place of ownership and rulership. I have a people called Israel, but they are going to receive my headship. I want to lay my head on them, my authority, my rule, my leadership. They're going to reject me. Oh, you still want to follow? This kingdom is not going to be set up like you think. You still want to follow? It wasn't an explanation of where he slept every night. It was an explanation that helped people understand who were looking for a job, thinking that the kingdom was going to be manifested on the earth rather than a spiritual kingdom, letting them know it's not going to happen like you think. And so it's not a justification for then preachers now feeling like you shouldn't have a home either because Jesus didn't have a home. And, and, and since he was homeless, you ought to be. Poor is where you really ought to be. That's not it. Again, Jesus was a really good son, and any good son would provide for his mama. He was a good carpenter, too, which meant he probably made a fairly good living, well, much like most carpenters would make, but I think that his living would be a little bit above what most carpenters would make. Why? Because who would make a better chair than Jesus? <laughs> who would make a better window than Jesus? Who would make a better door than Jesus? Who, whatever you needed in terms of wood, who would do it better? Now, nobody knew he was the son of God except a few, Mary and maybe some other relatives, but everybody else knew that dude, best carpenter in Dollar Galilee. I'm telling you, my chair, it doesn't creak after 20 years like it was made yesterday. Amazing. Yeah, I think he did pretty well for himself and provided for his mama. Long way around to the front door of saying that the house about which Mark makes mention is probably the house in which Mary lived and Jesus lived. And this is the place at which they did most of their staff meetings, where Jesus would bring his disciples in and have conversations and, and uh, strategy sessions about where we're going to go and what city and how we're going to do this next. And in Mark 2, it says they were at the house and Jesus was teaching. Now, when he taught back in Capernaum, because this was his hometown, everybody came in. I mean, he was a rock star. Jesus is back. Jesus is back. Wow, we can't wait. What, what is he going to say today? Who's he going to heal this week? Whoa. And they would just show up. I mean, the man would be eating dinner in his house, and folks would just come knocking. Say, can we hang? Can we hang? There were no formal church meetings. He was home. And they would just show up. And then he began to teach a little bit, and more people would show up, more people would show up, until you got people pushing out the doors trying to get in looking through the windows, sitting around the house just to get an earshot of what this guy might be saying. Just one nugget from heaven might change my life. And everybody's trying to get a piece of him. So he's teaching in the house. And there are these four guys that have their friend who is a paralytic, can't move. He's confined to a, a pallet. 
But these four guys are the, are the way he gets around. They take four corners, and they travel with him wherever he needs to go so that he can beg for the most amount of money. And, and they realize Jesus is in town. And they're thinking, oh, we can fix him and us. We don't have to carry him anymore. He gets healed. Everybody wins here. Let's see if we can get him to Jesus. Problem is they can't get him through the door. And nobody is giving way. Everybody wants to hear what he's got to say. So they say, we got to get in somehow. Oh. Every house had a thatch roof. Thatch is grass, long grass, weeds. And sometimes this tall. And you would cut it, you'd bundle it up, you'd make a house that had wooden slats upon which the, the thatch could set. And then you would stack it over and over until you had a house that was very thick with grass on top. And then as time would, would go, it would settle. And though it might be two feet to start, it becomes one foot afterwards. But it lasts for like 100 years if you do it well. It's a great roof. They sit there and say, we got to get our buddy in there. And the only way I know to do it is through the roof. So they climb on top. Jesus is teaching on the inside. And all of a sudden, as he's teaching, grass starts falling on his head. Now, none of what I'm saying is in the Bible, but this probably happened. <laughs> grass starts falling on his head. And he's just sitting, what, what, what? And everybody's looking up and saying, what are they doing? And then they lower this guy all the way down. And he's there on the floor. And Jesus, you know, when you can amaze Jesus, you've done something. Jesus is sitting there thinking, my goodness, ain't nobody done that before. <laughs> hey, dude, listen, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. No prayer. There wasn't any, let's take a moment to intercede. It was just one of these, go. Your faith is amazing. Done. Now, this house, he had the freedom to invite and not rebuke because it was he and his house and Mary's house. Here we see in Mark chapter 3, him in the same place. Crowd around. Jesus is teaching. Everybody's excited. Mary and, and his brothers come up. Now, when it says brothers, um, there is no word in Greek or Hebrew or many of the ancient uh, languages in the Middle East for cousin. doesn't exist. So if your parents had a sibling who had a child, that child was identified as your brother, your Adelphi. No difference in name. Difference in relationship in that they were one step removed, but they were called your brother even as your brother from your same mother and father would be brother. So there's no way for us to tell from this passage whether Jesus actually had, excuse me, Jesus actually had full brothers from Mary and Joseph. Now, I don't have any problem if that happened. Uh, they would have to be full brothers after, in other words, Jesus is the oldest, after Jesus was born. But I don't have any problem with it. Some people do. I don't. But it doesn't say it, so I don't proclaim it. Which I, but, but I do know because of culture that they had distance between, as in first cousins, but they would still call them brothers. So we're not quite sure. We can't say definitively. But we do know that relatives approached Jesus along with his mama. Now, to put this in context just a little, Jesus is in the middle of a ministry moment. He's teaching, helping people understand truth best. And all of a sudden, his mama and his brothers want to have a word with him. Now, you have to contextualize this. 
Who knew more about the importance of Jesus' ministry than Mary? Who knew more? Direct contact with an angel from Almighty God told her exactly what would happen before she was even, well, as she was becoming pregnant. And then a prophet, Simeon, when Jesus is being dedicated, tells her what's going to happen. And then Anna comes in, who's another prophet, prophetess, and tells her what's going to happen. She had so much prophetic word. If that, if that wasn't enough, Elizabeth, while she's six months pregnant, cries out her, her relative and says, how is it that the mother of my Lord would come to me? And she begins to prophesy so many words over this child. Not to mention the fact that she was pregnant without having relations with a man. This was an unusual human being. Nobody would know more about the purpose and intent of Jesus' ministry to Mary and be the last one to want to interrupt what he's doing. So why in the world, in the middle of his sermon, does she come in the back door and say, hey, Brett, I'd like to have a word with you? I mean, if my mama did that, everybody would say, well, that's his mama. But they'd also say, boy, it had to be urgent to stop him. I mean, it's, he's in... Can't she wait 20 minutes? It must not be. Somebody must be dying or something. Something's really going on. He's in the middle of his sermon and she interrupts him. Wow. So there had to be something here that she was really pressed about to stop him in the middle of his ministry. Well, remember, they were in the house. And what happened the last time they were in the house is that somebody tore up the roof. All I think she was probably going to say was, it was $1,500 to repair the roof last time. I'm just letting you know, if there's any way you need to heal somebody, just come outside. Bring the meeting outside. But the interesting thing about this is it it gives us some some understanding about how to relate to blood family. Because blood family is going to always interrupt your life. Always. It will never stop. (laughs) As long as you are related to people that are your relatives, you might as well welcome the inconvenience of the interruption. Don't be surprised by it. It's going to happen. You got to ask Abraham. Abraham was called to go to the promised land, but his brother Haran died and left a son named Lot that now was Abram's charge because the eldest son always had to take charge, or at least the most responsible, and maybe we believe that Abraham was both, but eldest son always had to take charge of of an orphan, somebody who was left by his, his dad. And so Abram wanders through the promised land. He's called to go. Okay, you all know. Abraham was in the Bible. He's the guy in Genesis with whom all this thing called the nation of Israel started. He was the progenitor. He was the, the, the father. And so God says, come to this land. I will show you. And he says, I want you to leave your family and your relatives. He did that, but he could not leave Lot because Lot was now a part of his family. He was saying, leave your extended family, not that. And so he had to bring Lot with him. Well, Lot was a problem all day. All day, every day, Lot was a problem. Bad attitude, wrong thinking, bad decisions. And and Abraham had to go to war in order to rescue him. He had to sacrifice his men. Maybe, maybe their lives and his own well-being, his safety, to rescue Lot from a bad decision. You, you probably have more lots, got a lot of lots in your life where you're always having to rescue them. But, but as long as you are, you're moving through your land of promise, you will always have lots. And all of us, as we progress in God, 
There are things we've got to carry with us. And they are, they are the privileges of inconvenience because families always bring interruption. It never, they never schedule an appointment. <laughs> I mean, your kids don't schedule an appointment with you. Your, your husband doesn't. Difficulty doesn't in their families, in their lives, extended relatives. It never is on the calendar. It just happens. And it's always, it always seems to be urgent. It may not be an emergency, but it's urgent to them. What do you do? You have to make accommodation. Jesus here doesn't say no. What he does is he redefines what family is. He just expands the definition beyond that, which everybody only thought it was. It's not just who flows with my genetics. It's people who do the will of God. He was a man, remember, who was God before he was man. So he made the commandment, that fifth one, honor your mother and father that your days may be long on the earth. He made that one. So he's not going to break it. The issue was not whether he was disrespecting his mom. He was trying to respect the environment and allow people who needed to hear the word of God to hear it. How do we incorporate our natural family, which we love dearly, into our world of ministry that we are developing? And how do we allow our ministry friends to incorporate within our natural family? without feeling or them feeling that somehow it's a competition thing. You love them more than me. It's supposed to be this integrated synergistic moment that allows us the privilege of expanding the borders of our heart which we have artificially placed as boundaries, allow them to expand to the level of which God desires. Because hear me, please, listen to this. There are no boundaries to love in your soul. You can love as long and with as many as you desire. You can care for people. There are no boundaries to care. It's not like you, you say, I can, I can only care for five people. That's it, five. Six, no more. No more. Can't do six. Only five. My heart only. You have to artificially put restraints because your ability to do that which God does well, and that's to love people, doesn't have any bounds. Now, your ability to practically provide for them and give them the, the attention does have bounds because you only have so much bandwidth and you're only one person. But that has nothing to do with how God created you in here. And so it's possible for you to love your natural family and also to love your spiritual family just as much. To care for people who don't have your last name almost as much as you care for those who do. Your priorities will be those who do. But it doesn't mean the others don't carry some degree of priority. Jesus said, those who do the will of God are my mother and my brothers. B making the circle of care as wide as it needs to be. And this is the beauty of, 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 of coming into Christianity, is that God allows you to experience the you that he's created you to be. You might think, Pastor, you just enlarged my sphere so big, I don't even know if I can contain it. I get it. But as you understand the bigness that God wants you to have on the inside, then it becomes easy to understand how much he wants you to love and how wide your arms can be to embrace those that you don't even know, different, strange, unlikable, unlovable. Why? 
because that's how we got in this thing and that God embraced us and stretched his arms out to, 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 to allow us the privilege of understanding what it means to be loved even when we did not deserve it. Jesus says, who are my mothers and brothers? Without neglecting the reality of who is his real mom and who, is, who are his blood. I was, um, I came, I really got right with God in 1982. And, no, 81. Got right with God in ni- March of 1981. And within two weeks, God called me to ministry. I, 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 I know it sounds strange, but he called me to ministry. And within nine months, I was in ministry. I don't know who thought it was a good idea to put a person who had known God for nine months in ministry responsible for other people's lives. But that was me. I was 20 years old when they called me and said, we want you to do this. I was 21 when I came here in 1982 and started a ministry at Howard University. Um, By 1991, I was married and had a couple of kids. And I accepted the responsibility to be pastor over this work. In doing so, uh, I took a work that was struggling and a work that needed a whole lot of attention. We had decreased from 180 to 53 people. Um, Mistakes were made by leadership, and I'll take all the brunt of it, even though I was not the leader. Uh, We wound up in a very, very tough spot where people were looking at one another every day trying to figure out, are you going to be here? And they were looking at me thinking, he's not going to make it. I'd never pastored before, yet I was their pastor. I had been an elder. I had been an associate pastor, but never been a senior pastor. I hadn't put together series before. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to govern. But we made it through, and we made it through to where we are now. But when I got right with God, I had a situation that was very untenable. My father did not like my Christianity. Now, he loved me deeply, cared about me so much, but couldn't understand why I was so crazy passionate about Jesus, couldn't understand it. I was supposed to be a dentist. He was a dentist. I was supposed to follow in his footsteps, uh, carry on his practice. I would have no overhead, have all of his patients. At, at the age, it was 1985, 86, at the age of 25, I would have been making between 80 and 100 in Kansas City, which is mm, a lot of money in Kansas City. <laughs> it's a lot of money in Kansas City in 1980-something. And I would have been able to pay his retirement through the income. Uh, God calls me to ministry, and he wasn't happy. He wasn't happy. And he didn't talk to me for five years. Um, nothing of substance. Uh, when, when we did talk, it was my initiation, um, and uh, it was only about the Kansas City Royals and the Kansas City Chiefs. It was nothing of substance. In 1989, um, 1990, he was in Kansas City, and he got very ill. He had to come live with me and now experience what it was like to be in my world, the world that he did not like. Um, he was literally, he was just about homeless in Kansas City. It was, it was not good. We didn't know it. He didn't want us to know. So we brought him out to live with me. And uh, when your dad lives with you, I'm I'm 30 now, okay? But I'm still boy. Now, if other people call me boy, we're going to fight. (laughs) But he's got the right. He can call me whatever he wants. (laughs) I'm his boy. 
Boy, go get me this. Yes, sir. <laughs> I got two kids. I got a wife. He's telling her how to cook. <laughs> how to clean, how to do the dishes, how to do the laundry. Dad, <laughs> you, you can't do that. You, you, can't, you, can't, you can't tell my wife what to do in our house. If you're going to live here, these are the rules. Okay. Yes. And he abided. He wasn't trying. He just didn't know what else to do. He was always in charge every place. He had lung cancer. Didn't tell us. Fell out in the grocery store. The attendants called the EMT, the emergency management. They took him to the hospital. And the doctor said, your father's very sick. I said, how? He said, he's got lung cancer. If he's got four months... He's got a good, yeah, it's a hard day. I didn't say, so what do we do? He said, well, make him as comfortable as possible. So we got some help, and we, I had to pick him up and literally with my arms and carry him into the car and take him to his radiation appointments. And once he got to the hospital, pick him up out of the van and put him in a wheelchair and wheel him off for his radiation, pick him up out of the wheelchair after this finished, back in the car, take him back in the car, pick him up out of the car, carry him back to his bed for about six months. Um, but during the time he was with me, the thing he hated the most, he came to love the most. He got baptized in my tub in my house. Pretty cool. He was talking in tongues. He even prophesied to himself. <laughs> so when he, when he got baptized, I'm taking my liberties today. When he got baptized, people were prophesying, saying, this, God's going to do this and this and this. And he stood up and said this, I say to myself, <laughs> can you do that? Can you do that? I say to myself, seize the day. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. Sat in my front row, cheered me on every Sunday. Privilege of my life to be inconvenienced with my blood, to carry him around through my land of promise, and to watch God do something in him that I didn't think would ever happen because he was so mad at me. And while we were trying to figure stuff out there. And I didn't bring anything of the tension from my past up or how he messed up our house when I was growing up or anything. I didn't bring any. It wasn't one of these, let me tell you why I'm in pain. And I want you to know I forgive you. Don't do that. Somebody may have hurt you really bad. I get it. But find your healing in God. And don't, don't try to to sanctify your anger by going to somebody who hurt you and being so open that you accuse them in the midst of your forgiveness. Are you listening to me? That confuses everything in what you're trying to do. I want you to know I forgive you for what you did to me. It was horrible, but I forgive you. Thank you. You don't know what to do with that. Don't do, I didn't do any of that. I just loved him. And he did some bad things. He did some bad things. I just loved him. We were watching a football game one day and, uh, on TV. And we were in his, in his room. And in the middle of the game, 
I mean, we were engrossed in the game. The Chiefs were playing. It was a big game. We're from Kansas City. He says, well, guess everything worked out okay, huh? And I was looking at the game. The Chiefs had just thrown an interception, and the other team had scored as a result. I thought, no, it did not work out okay. <laughs> we, we just went down by seven. How did it work? And I'm thinking that to myself, and I look at him, and he's looking straight in my eye. And I said, Yeah, Dad. Guess it did. That meant I'm sorry. That meant I wish I could have done it different. I'm so grateful you're caring for me. I'm proud of you. You took a people that didn't even know how to be a people and you made them into a people. You're amazing. But my dad was of the generation like John Wayne. You didn't say that stuff. You never expressed affection to your man-child. You did that for the girl. There's something about making sure that you bring your family into your spiritual life and incorporate them and realize how important it is to keep them with you even though they may be inconvenient. And Jesus said, the people who aren't my blood are defined as family by their obedience. If it says, it says there were people who were seated around him, which means if you are to find yourself being introduced into the family of God, you first have to be positioned well. You got to get in the right spot to hear the right thing so you can obey because obedience is the pathway to family for him. If you put yourself in the right spot, small groups, men's and women's meetings, Sunday morning church, Wednesday night, uh, prayer shield Friday night, if you put yourself in position to hear well, make sure your hearing aid is turned up. So you can not only hear what's being said by the person, but hear what's being said by God at the same time. Lord, what are you convicting me about when they're talking to everybody? What are you saying that I need to change when everybody else is hearing something that I'm hearing? I know you're talking to me in this. Let me know so that I can obey. Our obedience proves our sonship. And sonship is not gender specific. It is generic. It happens to be the, the nomenclature that Old Testament folk would use to talk about those who get to inherit because females, the girls, did not inherit. It's not that they weren't worthy of it. It's just that when they inherited stuff from the father, it went to the other family when they got married. And so the sons were the one who could carry it on in the, the territory that was the, the allotment for the inheritance for that particular family. And so the sons were the one who could inherit. When God says, you are a son, it's not gender. It's inheritance-minded. And when you find yourself as a person who obeys, you then get the stewardship of inheriting things from Almighty God. Now, it's one thing to be made a son as a result of, 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 of the new birth. Beautiful. And you're going to heaven. But the thing about being made a son is not just about identifying with God in glory. It's about manifesting yourself here so that the world can be made better. That they might know him more. And obedience gives you the privilege of manifesting your sonship best. People are wanting to know who God is. They can't see him. They can't hear him. But they want to know in the best way they can figure it out is by looking at you. Do you follow him? Can I see him in you? 
And most of the time, the world is looking at the church and saying, there's no reason for me to look at them to try to find God because they don't do anything different than I do. They sleep around just like I do. They do drugs just like I do. They drink like I do. They steal like I do. They lie like I do. They have no integrity. What's the difference? It's only when we distinguish ourselves through our obedience do people see our sonship. They see that we are part of a family and that, I don't know about you, and I'm going to close with this. Being a fuller meant something. Not to many people, but at least to my family. I had to carry a reputation with me. Being a fuller meant something. And it was one of these, don't, don't mess up the family name. Don't do something so stupid that now people are going to think this is the way fullers are. I bore the burden. I didn't mind bearing it. Good thing. And you got a family name. Your obedience helps to keep the family name up. We besmirch the family name when we don't obey. And the privilege of carrying that name also carries responsibility. I don't want to do anything that brings shame to the name of my God. What name has it given you? Christian, Christ-like. Remember that fourth commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Most folk relegate that to just making sure you don't say GDs. You don't say, you don't say a JC is an expletive. Mm, it's much deeper than that. Please don't do that. Don't do that. Don't relegate God's name coming out of your mouth to mean nothing. Because whenever you need it to mean something, you've said it so often whereby it means nothing, it now means nothing to you when you need it. It doesn't mean that it doesn't carry power. It just doesn't carry power with you. So don't say it wrong. But if a, if a woman comes down to the altar and she says, I do, and she takes the name of her husband, but then on the honeymoon down in 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 and give me a good place to go. Where? Hawaii. Hawaii. Okay, that's too far from here, but I'll take it. Hawaii. <laughs> In Hawaii, she sees a hunk of a man on the beach and decides to be with him. What has she done but taken his name in vain? Why'd you take the name if you're not going to live right? If you got the name, you got a responsibility. And that responsibility allows you the privilege of bearing his image to the world. Please do it well. He has called you to be family. He's given you the, the privilege of when you obey, of stewarding that to such a degree that you get more, 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 uh, you get more the, the, the stuff that allows other people to know who you are. You are manifested as a son on the planet by your obedience. Those who obey are my mother my brother and my sister. Identify with Jesus like that, not just because you said, Lord, my life is yours, but because you live like it.